taken from Colossians 3, which can be found on page 1184 in the Pew Bibles, starting at verse 11. Colossians 3, verse 11 to 15. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Well, thank you very much, Penny, for reading to us. I'd love you to keep Colossians 3 open, um, but it may have come to your attention that there are no church family news items on the service sheet and I'm determined not to forget them so I'm going to sneak them in at the start of the sermon okay there are, I've brought bits of paper with me to the pulpit um, this is a little flyer for the pancake party which may not be something that you are desperate to come to but you're warmly included it says all welcome Tuesday the 13th of February there's a delicious looking stack of pancakes there 5 to 6 30 p.m. in the north building I like those sorts of events for the way they bring together all ages in the church family. So you'll please consider yourself welcome to come, even on the cooking end, but certainly on the eating end with the pancake party. That must mean that Lent is not far off. The, um, the following day will be Ash Wednesday. We will have a two o'clock communion service here on the Wednesday um, in lieu of there, is, there happens to be a, a Tuesday, a Wednesday afternoon Bible study, which will be subsumed by that communion service. So other home groups will happen as normal on that. If you were wondering what happens in the home groups, there's a little card like that that has the information about it on there, and that reveals that the studies in the Sermon on the Mount will go through Lent, but not with newish Bible study groups going to upset the apple cart and change things around and have a Lent course or anything like that this year. Um, We might come up with a Lent book, but the Bible studies will be happening and that has the details of what's going to be going on during Lent. Okay, I think that's all I needed to say about that. But another important bit of paper I've got with me, All Saints Men, Christopher Ashe, How to Be a Non-Anxious Presence in an Anxious World. We are checking in case you're wishing you could be there and uh, you don't fit the bill for All Saints Men, um, that that will be recorded. We're going to try and get permission to do that and and, uh, so that other people that would like to have been there 
can be. But men, please come to it. I said to the 9.30 congregation, I want us to be, I think this is a God-given vision, the best family church we can be, by which I mean a multi-generational family. So the pancake party and things like that are good for getting all ages together, hopefully. Um, If we're going to be a a family church, we need families. And then I want to go and say on top of that, if we we want families to be here, we, we very much need the men to be built up and encouraged. And therefore, I want to encourage the men to come to that men's breakfast for your own sake, but also for the sake of the other guys there to encourage and strengthen them. So it doesn't have to be a a sort of testosterone central type event. We're not all going to be comparing our our football scores or anything like that. It'll be mutual encouragement and a, a key topic Not unrelated to what we're thinking about today. We're on the peace that comes when the Holy Spirit is at work amongst his people. Um, And how to be a non-anxious presence in an anxious world. uh, At least is a follow-on, I think, from today's Bible topic that we're looking at together now. Let's pray together and then we'll get uh, stuck into the Bible passage. Be still and know that I am God. We give you our thanks, Heavenly Father, just for the opportunity now to down tools and take a break in your presence with your word open before us. And we pray for that conviction that you are God on the throne to grip our hearts and to bind us together as we spend this time together in your presence. We ask it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. I have multiple bits of paper on top of the sermon, obscuring it from view. Let me tell you about an occasion once when um, Mother Teresa was asked what she thought was the world's worst disease. And she gave a a, a telling but perhaps surprising reply. It is not AIDS, leprosy or cancer, she said, but loneliness. And if you know any of the stats, it's hard to disagree that isolation and loneliness are a major problem in our increasingly fragmented Western society. Approximately 7.1% of people in Great Britain, that equates to 3.83 million, experience chronic loneliness, meaning they feel lonely um, often or always. And I suppose in part that reflects the fact we have an ageing population. In the UK, 11 million individuals are 65 years or older. As many as half of them have said that TV is their main company. But, of course, this runs much wider than the elderly. The number of adults who live alone has doubled over the last 50 years and now accounts for 30% of all households. And the isolation of young people, teenage mental health, that's been getting increasing attention as well in the years since the COVID pandemic. Now, if you add to that sense of sort of loneliness and um, isolation that people feel, the fact that we are 
polarized by all the different views and lifestyles that are in circulation with the cancel culture, as it's called, pitting people with sincerely held beliefs in opposition to each other. And you put that alongside um, the uh, sort of loneliness that uh, people feel or isolation, that polarization alongside it, that affects the social cohesion we feel as well, isn't it? Not surprisingly, we are often understood as a splintering society. And not surprisingly, therefore, many will feel the loneliness of that. But against that backdrop, I want to highlight just two words initially from our reading in Colossians. And they are words which in many ways take us to the heart of what it means to be part of God's alternative society, the Christian church. And the two words I mean are the words one another. They come in verse 13, if you have it open in front of you, page 1184. Bear with each other and forgive one another. Uh, In fact, I was under pressure from the preachers group on Tuesday to read on to verse 16 where they come again. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. I would say that there is a a sermon series crying out to be enjoyed where we could look at all the different one another texts describing how Christians relate amongst themselves. I don't know if you're able to recall them. John 13, 34, love one another. Hebrews 10, 25, encourage one another. Galatians 5, bear one another's burdens. Ephesians 5.22, submit to one another. James 5, confess your sins to one another. And actually there are plenty of other ones I could mention as well. But God's answer to the splintering of human society is the one anotherness of the church, his people. And that's very apt as we finish the week of prayer for Christian unity. And as we consider today that peace is one aspect of the fruit of the Spirit. Somebody once said that Christianity, which doesn't start with the individual, never starts. In other words, that one by one we need to come personally to Jesus Christ. And without that personal relationship with Jesus, we haven't even begun. Christianity, which doesn't start with the individual, never starts. But then they continued... Christianity, which ends with the individual, ends. Because, of course, the individual relationship must, if it's not to die, open outward to others. It can't stay a private matter. Instead, as people give their lives to Jesus and find forgiveness from him, the sin that separates them from God and from each other is dealt with. They're reconciled to God and to other human beings, even those who are very different from themselves, Jew and Greek, slave and free, Scythian and barbarian. We had all those uh, pairings in the first verse of our reading. We might add to that, uh, thinking about our situation today, those that are watching on Zoom, those that are in person in the congregation, young and old, rich and poor academics and artisans, Western and majority world, whatever the divisions that come to mind are. 
So this week we move on in our series on the fruit of the Spirit to the third characteristic of the Spirit-filled life. The fruit of the Spirit is peace. And I want to suggest that this chimes in very much with the one-anotherness of God's new society. Um, You might have been expecting, as we looked at this topic, to have uh, the sort of thing that Christopher Ash, I guess, will be dealing with in the men's breakfast, how to be a non-anxious presence in an anxious world, thinking about inner peace. And there's much in the Bible, that uh, precious Bible texts that we could uh, turn to, where, for example, Jesus says, my peace I, I leave with you, or favorite verse of mine in Isaiah 26, 13, uh, God will keep in perfect peace the one whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you, in God. Those sorts of verse. But I'm saying that uh, that Christian counterculture where we are at peace with each other because of the peace we enjoy with God is particularly in the groove with Galatians 5 and with Colossians 3. And it presents a very attractive picture, a better story that our world desperately needs Now, if we were looking in Galatians, just as a a sort of, I want to go there first. You'll have to keep a, I'm sorry to get you to put uh, fingers in bits of the Bible so that we can cross-refer. It occurs to me that that we're looking at Galatians 5, sort of, in our series on the fruit of the Spirit. And um, I wanted to make the point partly from Galatians today. If this is a complete turn-off to be chasing around different bits of the Bible. Read Galatians on your own sometime so that you see the background to why Paul said what he said about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. And just um, give me a freebie to take a moment on the bigger picture in Galatians that uh, ties that in here. But if you're into checking what the preacher's saying in Galatians before we get back to Colossians, then... uh, turn back a few pages. I think it's around about page 1169 and onwards I'm focusing on. But if we were looking in Galatians, um, one thing there would immediately strike us, I think, that peace cannot possibly mean a reluctance to engage in theological debate and even disagreement when that is necessary. And I thought that's worth highlighting a moment. In chapter 2 of Galatians, um, there's an account of a moment where Paul tackled Peter. So this is in public with other people around, one apostle locking horns with another apostle because, says Paul, his, Peter's behavior was not in line with the gospel of justification by faith alone. So there was no peace At that fundamental point, Paul didn't say, as people so often say today, that the correct path is to agree to disagree and to keep walking together. For him, that kind of peace is not possible on a central salvation issue. And when professing Christians try today to cover over major theological cracks with some pretty ecumenical wallpaper, as if there was no significant difference... Paul would have said, I think, that that's a false peace. I'm reminded of uh, an incident where the great American theologian of early last century 
who was a guy called B.B. Warfield. If these sort of names of uh, past greats are a real turn off to you, I'm sorry. You don't need to know anything more about him. I'm just telling you a quick story about this guy, B.B. Warfield, who was a bit of a hero of mine when I was in training. Um, long dead, even when I was in training, but still a hero. He, he was um, in, in, on, the, on the street. He bumped into somebody called Mrs. Stevenson, who was the wife of the president of Princeton Theological Seminary at the time. And Mrs. Stevenson was worried about the fireworks that might erupt at the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church. Dr. Warfield, she pleaded, I hear there's going to be trouble at the General Assembly. Do let us pray for peace. To which Warfield replied, I'm praying that if they do not do what is right, there may be a mighty battle. I wonder if you ponder that and think that that is actually uh, a right approach. Paul certainly reckoned that there are times when we're not called to peace, when the gospel is at stake. Do you want an example of it in here? Just see if you can find easily chapter 2, verse 5 where Paul puts it like this. Chapter 2, verse 5. Have I got that right? Yeah. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. No peace when the future of the gospel is threatened. But having said that, I'm going to move on. Paul is equally clear that where the gospel is preached... We do expect peace. It will bring peace. Peace with God, freely enjoyed because of Christ, will, should, produce peace amongst his followers. So repeatedly he stresses in Galatians that where the good news of free forgiveness is lost, then peace in the fellowship suffers. And you might remember that the presenting issue in Galatians was circumcision, And within the church, people were saying that the Gentiles had to be circumcised when they became Christians. Whenever you add to Jesus Christ, Jesus plus circumcision or whatever else you insist on, the result is always going to be the same. Inevitably, you get two tiers of Christians, or professing Christians, the converted and the super keen elite who take that additional step. And that two-tier Christianity always, always, always undermines the peace of the church. So in Galatians chapter 5, I think it's verse 15, he has to warn them there, if you bite and devour each other, watch out or you'll be destroyed by each other. That's a a rather different, a negative kind of one anothering that's going on there, isn't it? Or as he puts it in chapter 5 verse 24, there's a risk that we become conceited, provoking and envying each other. I found another little clue on this. Have you looked at the verses which precede the little section in chapter 5 on the fruit of the Spirit? You've got to get onto page 1172 if you're following in Galatians. There's a section there on the acts of the sinful nature. And have you asked yourself what predominates there? What if you've noticed how many of them focus on splintered human relationships? So it starts, if I can put it this way, 
um, in a way that we might anticipate. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft. No surprise with that list, maybe. But how does it continue? Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions. That's what happens even in a religious setting when the sinful nature is unchallenged. Whereas where the gospel brings peace with God, in that situation, as he puts it, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts. When that happens, there's going to be peace within the fellowship because the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Everyone's equal, equally justified, equally loved by God. So peace with God will promote peace with each other. The fruit of the Spirit is peace. So much for a little romp in Galatians. Let's get back to Colossians and focus on our reading from Colossians chapter 3. Um, you've got to just flip on a few pages to page 1184. Now, the word for peace comes in verse 15 explicitly. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And those words have been misunderstood. Uh, They aren't, in fact, I don't think, about how God guides us. Perhaps you've heard somebody say, if you're faced with a difficult decision, maybe you've got to choose between two possible courses of action, and there doesn't seem to be too much difference, too much to choose between them, which job to take, what to do as a church council. Well, pray about it, and then consult your heart, because God will guide you by giving you a sense of peace by lifting any sense of anxiety about one of the two, so you know the right way forward. Don't you decide. Let the peace of Christ act as the umpire in your hearts. And I want to suggest that that is... You might find other bits of the Bible that give you that sense of uh, an anxiety being a a warning against something not being the right course of action, but my problem is that... (laughs) I am quite capable of feeling a sense of peace about something which is not at all God's will. And it's a dangerous way, therefore, for us to make decisions, if we're honest. But here, I'm pretty confident it isn't what Paul is meaning anyway. Let me read on in the verse and see if I can persuade you of that. Have a look at it again, verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts since... As members of one body, you were called to peace and be thankful. So from that second half of the verse, it's clear, isn't it, that he isn't talking about one individual feeling peace in his or her heart. It's about Christ's peace ruling all the hearts, plural, of all the members of the body. In fact, the preceding paragraph, which we had read by Penny, is crucial to understanding the phrase properly. So let me read verses 12 to 14 again. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. That's not always obvious when you see verbs in English, whether they're singular or plural, but these ones are all plural. So this 
clothing exercise where we're putting clothes on. It's not one solitary Christian trying on clothes in a private changing cubicle in John Lewis, okay, in the clothes department. We are all to be clothing ourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, forbearance, forgiveness towards one another. We're all involved. Then over all those virtues, like a great big overcoat, they're to put on love corporately as the, the binding feature of their church life. There's a lovely phrase in verse 12 which we can't skip over if we're to uh, really get the force of the passage. Paul reminds the Christians at Colossae that they are God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. And I don't know, maybe that is the one phrase that somebody here needs to be reminded of today. If you are a follower of Christ, you are chosen by God, you're holy, that means he set you and other Christians apart from the rest of the human race, you're special to him, you're handpicked, you are dearly loved. And it may be that somebody comes here today feeling the love tank is pretty low. Say those words to yourself right now. Chosen, holy, dearly loved. If you doubt it, look at how much he loved you. Enough to give his one and only son to die on the cross for you. Now, that applies to the individual, but of course it applies corporately. And I need to see other, I need to see myself that way if I'm following Christ, but I need to see you that way as well. We need to see each other that way. If we have received love like that, then what else can we do but offer that love to each other? So as verse 14 puts it, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And that, it seems to me, that paragraph beforehand makes sense of verse 15. We've all received love and mercy from the crucified Christ and As in Galatians 5, the ground is level at the foot of the cross, so any grudges and hostility are off limits, or should be, for Christians. We've received peace from Christ, and now that peace is to rule at the very center of our lives, binding our hearts together. It's not about my personal peace, but about the harmony and love which is to exist among Christians because they've all received peace from Christ. I mean, it has hugely important implications for our expectation of church life. It's all too easy to embark on the quest for the perfect church, where we imagine all this sweetness and light. Can I just say, if you're looking for a church like that, then be prepared for a long search. And of course, when you find your perfect church, don't join it, will you? Because you're sure to spoil it. Or at least you will if you're a sinner. We've got to revise our expectations of church. The church at best is Christ's hospital. It wasn't for the healthy he came. But for the sin sick. And it should be no surprise therefore to find that there will be quarrels occasionally, disagreements and difficulties amongst Christians. We are sinners. 
fact, you could argue that if there aren't such tensions, it probably means we aren't close enough to each other. It doesn't necessarily mean we're in harmony. It means simply that we aren't getting close enough to to each other to rub each other up the wrong way. Paul just assumes that Christians will have plenty to forgive each other for. But, here's the good news, if Christ's peace is ruling among us, all those blemishes and faults are simply opportunities to bring Christ's love into play again and again. And his peace will, should rule in our hearts. I don't know much about the uh, philosopher Schopenhauer. I don't know how to say his name, which country he was from, but I like this quotation. It's my only Schopenhauer quote that I've got in my arsenal, and it's not even a direct quote. But he told about how human beings are like a pack of porcupines huddling close to stay warm on a cold night. Well, you can imagine it, can't you? Every attempt for them, the porcupines to get close to one another results in other porcupines getting injured by the sharp quills, so they have to separate again. And they try to get close again, presumably to provide an answer to the cold, with the same result. They come close to each other, spike each other, separate, coming together only to divide again and again and again. That describes human efforts to create peace. We cannot do it by ourselves. There's only one source of peace which will bring us together and keep us together. His peace, showing in our relationships with one another, those two important words. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. His peace, the peace given by Jesus through his death for our sins. That peace, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Or put another way, the fruit of the Spirit is peace. In other words, a God-given peace which comes from the Holy Spirit when he indwells us and transforms our lives. What will it mean for the peace of Christ to rule in our hearts? Trying to anchor it in some sort of practical uh, response. And you can probably think of lots of different ways. Maybe you've got areas where... The peace is under threat at the moment that you need to give attention to. Well, it must mean that peace, instead of disordered relationships, must be the top commitment, the ruling or governing principle of our lives. And I just thought, this, forgive me if this, the cap doesn't fit here, but I just thought of one simple area. Given the technological revolution in the last few years, might it not apply to the importance of face-to-face relationships for communication between us, particularly the types of communication which might be misunderstood or prone to cause sparks to fly. Make sure, if you're an email sender, that you know how to put the email in the draft box so you can read it again before you press send. Um, I love WhatsApp messages. I don't know if you've discovered them. They're great because you can have a group involved. And they're a great tool, the personal ones, for a quick message of encouragement or for letting somebody know that they're in our thoughts, maybe for reminding 
a team of an arrangement which has been made. Here's an appointment for the Bible study on Wednesday night, that sort of thing. But have you made a mental note that whilst communication tools can bring great benefits, there are also dangers? Yeah, for passing on information, for arranging practical things like a meeting, WhatsApp is great. But as a way of discussing more complicated things, maybe things where people's feelings are involved, even if we're not aware of that, they can be high risk there, can't they? Much better to meet in person and slow the communication down a bit. Of course, we don't want to do that, but much better to slow it down a bit sometimes so that we can listen as well as speak, particularly if there's a topic where there's going to be quite a bit of to and fro. And, of course, we should take special care if there are other people involved in a chat group to be self This is a note to self. Be self-aware enough to notice a tendency, if you have it, as I do, to enjoy stirring the pot with others looking on. Uh, watch out if temperamentally you are someone who speaks first and thinks later on email or WhatsApp. may not be the best format for you, if you press send a bit too quickly. I am, I don't know, we have a lot of different teams in the church that use WhatsApp and there are great benefits in it, but I strongly recommend not holding team meetings on WhatsApp, as it were. Now, don't have strategy discussions to and fro on WhatsApp. Do it in person because the fruit of the Spirit is peace. I am much more likely to relate to you as someone in the image of God for whom Jesus died and in whom the Spirit dwells uh, if we meet face to face. And if I have received peace from God freely and fully, then for certain God is wanting that peace to bind me together with other believers. Did I promise you that we'd finish in Philippians? Can you flip back to Philippians for a prayer? Full steam ahead to find the page number for us. Philippians 4. While you're finding it, let me remind you about that... uh, men's breakfast. Take a card just to remind you of that important topic. Pray for it at least, how to be a non-anxious presence in an anxious world. There are two great mentions of peace in Philippians chapter 4. Verse 7, and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God there in verse 7 And this lovely little promise at the end of verse 9, the God of peace will be with you. I'm I'm not trying to knock that sense of inner peace at all. It's something I rejoice in and uh, long for all of us to enjoy. And it'd be good to pray for that peace to be operating amongst us in our hearts Guarding our hearts. There is a war on and we need his peace to guard our hearts, don't we? It's quite a sort of realistic and sober verse, verse 7. Let me lead us in a prayer, praying, verse 7, for all of us and uh, claiming that promise and holding God to it at the end of verse 9.
So may the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus, the Prince of Peace. We pray you'd help us to drill into the wonderful peace that he secured for us when he died for us on the cross and to enjoy it in our lives day by day and indeed in our relationships with each other. Thank you for this gracious promise that you, the God of peace, will be with us. We hold you to that, Father, and pray that you would make that true in our experience throughout this coming week. In Jesus' name, amen.